Would you bow with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you went to such great lengths to record it for us, that you inspired men of old prophets and men from all walks of life as they were led by your Holy Spirit to record your message to us. Thank you that it is reliable, that it is trustworthy, and that it's not just studying old, dusty manuscripts, but that it's living and active. It's here for us today, and that you have a message and a word through it for each one of us. So I pray, speak through me, your servant. Guide our thoughts and uh, actions to move ahead by the Holy Spirit, and may you be glorified in our lives through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, going back a couple hundred years or so, it was May 12th, 1789, in the British House of Commons. Today, the British House of Commons is, of course, known in the news for its furious debates over Brexit. But back then, I would say that the debate was over something far more important than Brexit. For on that day of May the 12th, 1789, the MP for Yorkshire, one William Wilberforce, stood and delivered a three-hour speech which I am now going to read in its entirety. (laughs) No, I will not. But that three-hour speech became the catalyst for altering the course of history for the better. You see, only two years prior, William Wilberforce had become persuaded that God was calling him to use his political office to confront the evils of the slave trade. But now, two years into the fight, He was going nowhere, and slavery remained as entrenched and immovable as a mountain. It was simply part of the fabric of the British life. It was wrapped up in economics, money, trade, everything. Slavery was embedded. It wasn't going anywhere. And so on that 12th of May, Wilberforce had already experienced in that same house ridicule, being shouted down, being laughed at, and even being personally threatened. Not to mention, there were precious few other MPs who agreed with his position, and fewer still who were willing to announce them publicly. But yet, he still stood that day. And he said in his introduction, When I consider the magnitude of the subject which I am about to bring before the House, a subject in which the interests not of this country, nor of Europe alone, but of the whole world and of posterity... Are involved. And when I think at the same time on the weakness of the advocate who has undertaken this great cause, when these reflections press upon my mind, it is impossible for me not to feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. But when I reflect, however, on the encouragement which I have had through the whole course of a long, laborious examination of this question, and how conviction has increased within my own mind, When I turn myself to these thoughts, I take courage. I determine to forget all my other fears, and I march forward with a firmer step in the full assurance that my cause will bear me out, and that I shall be able to justify upon the clearest principles every resolution I hold in my hand, the avowed end of which is the total abolition of the slave trade. Now, to those listening ears back in 1789, when Wilberforce announced the total abolition of the slave trade, it seemed as equally bold and equally as impossible as if he had stood and declared, man will fly to the moon. 
And though it took many, many more years of political battle and at great personal cost, the historical record tells us that on August 1st, 1834, the British government voted to officially abolish slavery in all colonies, including Canada, which immediately set free over 800,000 slaves in bondage, in indentured servitude, with no choice. 800,000 living souls were suddenly set free to live their own lives as they saw fit. The historical record also tells us that this began with William Wilberforce's courageous speech that day. It will forever be his legacy and his gift to the world and to us as Canadians. There is yet another man I'd like to draw your attention to this morning who made an equally powerful speech and a bold declaration. He lived approximately 35, pardon me, 3,200 years before William Wilberforce. And that man we know best simply as Caleb. We find his speech recorded for us in Joshua 14, which Jamie read for us a little bit earlier. I'd invite you to turn there with me. We'll be getting to those verses in just a minute. Now here is a seasoned, grizzled warrior, Caleb. And he inspired a nation and future generations when in verse 12, in the middle of his speech, he made the bold request, Give me this mountain. So what can we learn from Caleb's speech and his bold request? The first lesson that I'd like to draw out for you this morning is this. We must face our mountain. It's now past the fifth year mark of the Israelite campaign to conquer Canaan. They're five years in. Joshua and the army have been at battle after battle after battle. All told, 31 kings and even more cities have fallen before them. Now, for the very first time since crossing the Jordan River, after five years of constant warfare, Joshua and the Israelites, they sit down in their camp at Gilgal, and they begin to size up the land for distribution and settlement amongst the various tribes of Israel. Caleb was also there representing the tribe of Judah. Even so, the job of taking Canaan wasn't completely finished, and in Joshua 13, verse 1, we read, when Joshua was old and advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old. You ever had the Lord say that to you? <laughs> you are very old. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. No. The Lord says to him, You are very old, and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. It's kind of a double whammy there. You're old, and the job's not done. There's still more land to be taken. That land yet to be taken included unconquered lands that we looked at last week, the Philistines that became a thorn in the Israelites' side. We, we looked at how those oversights resulted in consequences for future generations. Other unconquered land included Mount Hebron and all the hill country surrounding it. Now in this next slide, you'll see a modern-day picture of Mount Hebron. It's actually quite a pretty picture the grass is green for the small time of the year that it is green there in Israel. And uh, in the background, you see Mount Hebron. Now, you may be looking at that picture, and I think some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, that's not a mountain, right? That's not a mountain. However, what people call mountains is relative to their surroundings, isn't it? That's true. We know this because has anyone here seen Turtle Mountain? 
right? I rest my case. <laughs> it's relative to the surroundings. To everything else, Turtle Mountains, those are mountains. I once talked to someone who had uh, come to Canada for the first time. I think they were one of the singers from one of the gospel groups from the south, and they came here, and they had heard about, you know, Canada's mountains, and in their mind, they're picturing the Rockies, and this was their first time coming to Canada. They came here, they're like, the Turtle Mountains, this is going to be awesome, and they look, and he was so disappointed. (laughs) I was like, yeah, if you want to see the Rockies, that's a little further west, right? It's all relative to what you've seen or are expecting, yet in that region, that is Mount Hebron. Now, you may recognize the name Hebron, as the principal location where Abraham and Sarah settled and were buried nearly five centuries earlier. But even though it was one of the very locations, perhaps on that very hill, or mountain, sorry, upon that very mountain that God gave his promise to Abraham that I am going to give you all the land you can see to your descendants are going to be as numerous as stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. Perhaps on that very mountain, God made that promise or repeated that promise to him. And yet, that mountain, ironically, the very one where Abraham, Father Abraham made his dwelling is still unconquered. Now, in the next slide... You're going to see the location of Hebron, just so you can kind of get a bearing on where this is. If we can go on to the next slide, we see an overview here. So here we have uh, a map overview of Israel, and uh, it's talking about the conquest of Hebron. And so right up here is Jerusalem, right up here at the top of the map. And down here, south of Jerusalem, is Hebron, and right here is the hill country. So some of the translations in the Bible will say, you know, he says, give me this hill country. Uh, The other, the Hebrew word includes mountain, which we just talked about. And so that's located right here at Hebron and the surrounding what are today known as the Judean hills or the Judean mountains. So that's the location that we're talking about. So Hebron's not taken. Now you'll see also on the map the red line. Now the red line is pointing to the route that Caleb walked many, many years earlier, a hike, if you will. He was one of the 12 spies sent out by Moses to spy out the land. They began down at the bottom. You'll see here it's set in your text at Kadesh Barnea, right down here. So this is the route of the 12 spies. So when they spied out the land, they started in the south, and they worked their way up north through the hills. I'm sure they were being very careful to not be caught, and they worked their way all the way up here. Now what's interesting is that for Caleb, he and Joshua, of course, we know, are the only two spies to give a good report of the land, saying, we can take it, let's go do it, God is with us. The other ten gave an evil report. And so the reward that Moses gave to Caleb and said, the Lord will give this to you, is all the places that you walked, where your feet rested, will be your inheritance one day because you serve the Lord wholeheartedly. So Hebron was on Caleb's route, and so by this promise from God through Moses, it belonged to him. But five years into the conquest of Canaan, they still haven't taken it, and it begs the question, why? Why haven't they taken it? Why not go there first? It's where Abraham lived, after all, the father of the nation. Well, there's actually a giant reason why they haven't taken it. Let's look at the middle of Caleb's speech in chapter 14. In the middle of verse 12, where Caleb says, 
speaking to Joshua, you yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. Now, if you recall from last Sunday, the Anakites are the race of giant warriors and they still lived on and around Mount Hebron in fortified cities. And make no mistake about this, the Anakites were large and they were scary and most likely hairy. Just throwing that in there. So now, they, the Anakites, are the very reason that 45 years earlier, the other 10 spies, when they came up to Hebron in that region, they are the very reason those other 10 spies had been so afraid and said, we can't do it. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. The very place that was the catalyst for the devastating consequence that the entire nation had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation, other than Caleb and Joshua, every last one died. And so Mount Hebron represented an unconquered enemy in Israel's promised land, an unconquered stronghold that God had promised to Abraham, this place and everything around it will be yours and your descendants, but there it stood right smack in the middle, untaken and unconquered. And I believe there is a spiritual parallel for us today in every Christian's journey. Because in every Christian's journey, when, when we come to faith in Christ and we, as it were, cross over into that promised land of the Christian life, of moving forward in faith, battle by battle, step by step as the Lord leads us through this life, we inevitably will come up against a Mount Hebron along the way. And of course, everyone's journey is unique. No two are exactly alike. And so that mountain can look very different from one person to the next. One person will look at your mountain and say, that's not a mountain, that's just a molehill. Why are you making such a big deal out of it, right? Kind of like the one we saw back there. That's not a mountain, that's small. But to you, it's a mountain, it's huge, because it's blocking your path forward. It's blocking the path to God's full plan for your life and what he wants to do in your life. And so often when we come up against these mountains, our natural tendency is to ignore the severity of the obstacle and say, well, you know what, it's there, but it's not that big a deal. We're just going to let it stand. The other tendency is not only to let it stand, but to avoid it altogether, avoid the battle, run away from it. And then we easily justify it to ourselves by saying, well, but look at the other ground I've already taken. You know, I've been at war for five years. We've taken swaths of land. What's the big deal about this particular piece of land? I think I'm good enough. I've transformed enough. You know, I'm not who I was. I'm already far more obedient to Christ than I was five years ago. But if there's another step of obedience, another area, a stronghold, where there's a sin or something in your life that God says, this has got to go. This has got to be challenged and removed so that we can move forward. We're up against it now. We can't say, I'm going to run away. Because the problem with that approach is this. God's ultimate goal for you and for me is not to hand us a most improved ribbon at the end of our lives. Has anyone ever got a most improved ribbon before or award of some kind? I've got one before, and it kind of feels good, but it also kind of feels like, how bad was I before? <laughs> right? It's, it's just a tick up from honorable mention. Oh, those honorable mention ribbons that they give out at the fair when it wasn't first, second, or third, you know, the ones in the money? Yeah, no thanks. Honorable mention was kind of like, 
thanks for coming out, right? God's not working to that end. He's not saying thanks for coming out, thanks for trying, most improved, honorable mention at the end of our lives. God's goal for each one of us as followers of Christ is nothing less than to transform and conform you and I fully, fully into the perfect likeness of Christ. That's a mouthful, isn't it? His word tells us, For he who began a good work in you will carry it out until the day of completion. Completion. That means done, finished, nothing left. We have been fully conformed into the image of Christ. And my friends, there are no shortcuts around Mount Hebron. And God will simply not allow us to avoid it forever either because God's end goal for your life and mine is to become fully like Christ and nothing less. And so we must face our mountain and not flee from it. But praise the Lord, when we do face our mountain, remember, it's not our strength. It wouldn't be Caleb's strength either that would give victory over that mountain. But it would be God's strength, his help, that would give the victory and that achieves the transformation. So number one, we must face our mountain. Number two, we must submit to God's authority. Woven into the story of Caleb's life is an incredible humility demonstrated by his willingness to submit to the Lord and those whom God established as leaders and authorities over him. Remember, Caleb, get this, Caleb is Joshua's only peer. His only peer. The only one who is the same age, the same generation as him. Everyone else is dead. Literally, they're gone. Joshua and Caleb stand alone. They're the two old guys, right? I'm sure they got maybe teased, not directly to their faces, but, you know, uh, whatever the Hebrew term, I should have looked this up, is for, you know, the old ones. I know in, uh, in German, you know, sometimes you'll refer to an elder as ye, right? And I remember my, my uncle once um, jokingly referring to my dad as ye, because he's a couple of months older than him. You know, that you're ye and I'm a young guy in comparison, right? And, uh, you know, that kind of an idea. These are the yees, the elders, the old guys of everyone else who is significantly younger than them. And so, the only two guys left, remember, who were born in Egypt, everyone else has been born after. They're the only two guys who have done it all, essentially, in their lives. Very similar stories in a lot of ways. Both born in Egypt, Both spied on the land. Both gave a good report. Both of them then stood with Moses and Aaron against that rebellious generation who wanted to stone them to death and go back to Egypt. Both were recognized as mighty warriors. Both served the Lord wholeheartedly. In fact, a case could be made that Caleb could have just as well been called by God to lead the nation rather than Joshua. But the fact is, God didn't. The fact remains that God chose Joshua. So, did Caleb resent that? Did he feel jealous in any way? Did he perhaps act like, well, Joshua, you and I, we're peers, we're equals. You can't tell me what to do. The answers are no, no, and no. We see in Caleb someone who clearly submitted to God's sovereign authority over his life, and so that meant he also willingly submitted to the leadership that God had placed over him, who was Joshua. And it's the same for us. Regardless of vocation in life, 
Everyone has some authority over them that they must submit to. When we're children, we must submit to the authority of our parents. Even as we grow up and we're not in their house anymore, we must still honor our parents. That is a command from the Lord. These are things, authorities God has placed over us. God has put teachers over us. God has placed governments over us. And get this, whether we like our government or not, we must still submit to their authority. We read about that in Romans. For they do not bear the sword in vain. However, in all of these things, in all of the authorities God places over us, whether good, bad, or somewhere in between, God establishes earthly authority, I think, for one of the primary reasons to teach us how to submit to his ultimate authority. You see, through submission to God's sovereign authority, we place ourselves in a position to be blessed by someone with far greater resources and ability than we have. There's a story told that during the days when general stores were the mainstay for providing supplies for small towns, rural communities, a young girl and her family made their weekly trip into town. Some of you are going to be visualizing this in your mind right now, that once a week trip to town to the general store. And so while mom and dad shopped, the little girl sat quietly at the counter watching the customers pay for their merchandise and eyeing up the candy on the counter, which she had no money to buy. When her parents finished shopping and approached the counter to pay, the clerk commended the little girl on her excellent behavior and praised the parents. He then asked if it would be all right to give that little girl some of the bubblegum that he had there. The clerk said, don't worry, it's on me. She doesn't have to pay for it. You don't have to pay for it. Just reach your hand into that jar and grab a handful of gum. But the little girl gave a shy little smile, and she shook her head. No. Don't you want some gum? asked the clerk. Without saying a word, she nods. Yes. The clerk then thought, wow, this girl's so shy, I've got to do it for her. So he reaches into the jar, pulls out a handful of gum, and gives it to the girl. And she said with great enthusiasm, thank you, sir. As they were leaving the store, the mother asked the girl, you're not shy like that. Why didn't you just reach your hand in and take some gum like he said? And the smart little girl replied with a little smile, because, mommy, His hand is way bigger than mine. (laughs) I love that story. I want to ask you an important question. Do you know whose hand is way bigger than yours? And I know some of you are going to look at Vern Harms right now. (laughs) Let me phrase it another way. Do you know whose hand is way bigger than Vern Harms's? Vern knows it's God's. God's hand. There's a great old song, many of you have sung it, you probably know it by heart, that goes, he's got the whole world in his hand. And Isaiah 40 verse 12 backs that up. The prophet writes, Who else has held the oceans in his hand? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who else but the Lord? You see, we humbly submit to proper authority in humble recognition that God is sovereign. 
He is over and above all things, and we are not. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6, our call to worship, that great verse, I hope you have it memorized. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And another translation of that is, in all your ways, submit to him. And he will direct your steps, or he will make your paths straight. You see, Caleb understood that by submitting to God's authority over his life, over the leadership God had placed in his life, he was positioning himself in such a way as to receive and rest under God's blessing. Number three, and this is a big one, and this is a hard one. We learn from Caleb that we must wait patiently on God's timing. Turn with me now to Joshua 14, verse 7. In Joshua 14, verse 7, I'm going to read part of his speech here. One of my favorite parts of his speech. I love the whole thing, but this is my favorite part. Verse 7, he says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. Then we skip ahead to verse 10. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now, any way you slice it, 45 years is a long time, isn't it? 45 years. All I can say is I'm not 45 years old yet, so I'm not qualified to say that 45 years is a long time. Some of you are more qualified than I. Any way you slice it, it's a long time. It's longer than the span of how we count generations. And yet, there was Caleb, promised that land at age 40 in the prime of his life. But then, at 40, when he's got visions in his head of, what am I going to do with this land? I'm going to put vineyards here. I'm going to build my town there. I'm going to settle this. I'm going to do that. The next 40 years go by, wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. 40 years. The prime years of his life just go by, accomplishing zilch. Nothing. Nada. And then, finally, after those 40 years pass, and they arrive we might expect him to want to take his land straight away. But still he doesn't. He remains under Joshua's authority. He listens to what Joshua says. We're going to go fight here first. We're going to go fight there first. And he remains under Joshua's authority. He fights for the good of the whole nation. And he waits patiently another five years on the Lord's timing. And so Caleb's 45 years of patience, however, 45 years of waiting from the time of the promise, did not go unrewarded. God knew that he was going to have to sustain Caleb for the long haul if he was going to keep his word to Caleb to give him this land. God blessed him with health and vitality that so defied his 85 years that Caleb declared, and I don't think he was boasting, I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now, how many people present, and I want to say this respectfully, ye, <laughs> how many of ye over the age of 80 feel just as strong and vigorous today as you did at age 40? Any hands going up? <laughs> I don't want to know, okay. I didn't want to make anyone a liar in church today. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> Thank you that you feel as strong and vigorous today. 
The fact is, unless the the Lord supernaturally, divinely intervened in Caleb's health and vitality, he would not be able to say that. He would not be able to say it and have it be true. And so God rewarded Caleb's patience 45 years by rewarding him with health and vitality that defied his years. And Isaiah 40 verses 30 to 31 must have been thinking of Caleb when the prophet declares, Even youths grow tired, tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Caleb experienced that. And so we too must learn to wait patiently on the Lord's perfect timing. Even if we've been promised something and we just want to grab it right now, wait until God says go. Wait until God says it's the right time. Number four, we learn from Caleb to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly regardless of your age. Now Caleb is described multiple times as a man who served the Lord wholeheartedly. He's described that way at age 40, and he's described that way again at age 85. Quite simply for Caleb, there was no retirement age for serving the Lord wholeheartedly. And you know what? It's the same for followers of Christ. I say, you're never too young to start, and you're never old enough to quit. You're never too young to begin. You're never old enough to say, I'm done. There's a great story told by Dr. Paul Brand, a well-known doctor and author. And he was raised in India by his missionary parents. In his book uh, that he wrote entitled In His Image, Dr. Brand writes an experience of his mother, who was 75 years old, and she was still walking miles every single day, visiting the villages in the southern part of India, teaching the people about Jesus the Savior. And one day at age 75, she was traveling alone. She tripped, fell, and broke her hip. After two days of just lying there in pain, some workers found her and put her on a makeshift cot, loaded her into their jeep, and well-meaning, they drove 150 miles over deep, rutted roads to find a doctor who could set those broken bones. However, that very bumpy ride damaged her bones so badly that her hip could never be completely healed, no matter what the doctors did. He said, I visited my mother in her mud-covered hut several weeks later. I watched as she took two bamboo crutches that she had made herself and moved from one place to another with her feet just dragging behind her because she had literally lost all feeling in them. He then said, At age 75, with a broken hip, unable to stand on her own two legs, I thought that I made a pretty intelligent suggestion when I simply said to Mom, Maybe it's time you retire. And she turned and looked at me with such a look, and she said, what value is that? If we try to preserve this body just a few more years, and it's not being used for God, of what value is that? So she kept on working. She kept on riding her donkey to villages until she was 93 years old. And she continued to tell people about Jesus Christ until she finally went to her Savior At age 95. You see, Christ followers do not retire from kingdom service. Yes, the service, the type of work changes, but we don't retire. 
We enlist in the army of God and we serve until either we go to Christ or Christ comes back to us. That's the deal. And we look at Caleb and how incredible that even at 85 years of age, he looks up at an unconquered mountain with fortresses filled with giants and he declares to Joshua, now give me this mountain. In verse 12, he continues, You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. And listen to this, But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Look who Caleb's depending on for this victory. He says, Now give me this mountain. But he doesn't beat his own chest saying, I'm so strong and mighty. He says, With the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. This wasn't Caleb's declaration. He was agreeing with what the Lord had already said would take place. And he says, now give me this mountain. And this leads us to our final point. Take your mountain and claim your inheritance. After 45 years, the time had finally come. The time of waiting was over and it was time to act. And I love how the rest of the story is recorded in a completely understated way in verses 13 and 14. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He gave him Hebron as his inheritance. And verse 14, So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, the Kenizzite ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. The end. And that's it. Joshua gave it to Caleb, and it was his and his descendants forever. I want you to take note of something. What is missing there's not one mention of the Amalekites or how Caleb went on to defeat them. Quite simply, the author is making the point here that with God's help, Caleb's final victory over the giants was just a footnote, not even one that bared mentioning. It was a given. It was guaranteed because Caleb was moving forward at the right time, with the right help, knowing that God had already promised him this mountain and so that victory was guaranteed. They didn't even need to tell you how it happened. And so too in Christ, get this, if you're a follower of Christ, our final victory over whatever our personal Mount Hebron is, is also guaranteed. And our eternal inheritance is secured, not because of us, but because God has promised it. He will finish what he has started in each of our lives, because of what he's already achieved through the cross of Christ. It's done. The victory is secure. And so, like Caleb, we can move forward with confidence. The giants, whatever we're facing, it's just a footnote. Because we are serving the Lord wholeheartedly, waiting on his timing. We're submitting to the Lord's authority. And regardless of age, moving forward to take that mountain and claim our inheritance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible story of an incredible servant of yours who faithfully served you wholeheartedly his entire life. When he was young and when he was old, he gave his all for you. And so, Lord, we thank you for an incredible example that he sets for us today, that he believed your word and your promises. He waited on your timing. He submitted to your authority and the authorities you placed over his life. And as he waited patiently, you, give, you gave him the incredible ability to endure, to stay strong and mighty in you, 
and that even in old age, when the time was right, he was able to say with confidence, with boldness, now give me this mountain, for I know with God's help it will be mine and my descendants forever. And so, Father, today we face mountains in our landscape. We face them personally. We face them collectively. And, Lord, as we think back on William Wilberforce's declaration, the total abolition of slavery, it seems so huge back then, but we take it for granted today. And so, Lord, in the same way as we collectively face the horrible evil of abortion, we too declare, Lord, may it be abolished in our land. This mountain, may it be removed by your power and those who are willing to stand with you and your people in opposition. And so we pray, Lord, for men like William Wilberforce to be raised up, men and women who will stand, those who would be willing to use political office and to be willing to, to do what's right, not because it's politically expedient, because your word declares this is true and right. And so, Father, we pray for these things. We pray for boldness in our own lives. We pray for wisdom. We pray for patience, Lord. There are times when we want to just rush forward and take what you've promised, but you said the time's not yet right. Give us patience and wisdom to discern your leading in this. And so, Father, thank you that through these things you build us up to the end aim of not just being most improved at the end of our lives, but to be nothing less than conformed fully to the image of Christ, our Lord and Savior. We look forward to that day. And until that day, keep on working on us, God. Don't give up. Even when we're down, thank you that you never will. We love you, and we commit ourselves again fully to you. In Jesus' name, amen.